Noah, what is the key insight? Hexapodia is the key insight, that there is often some key nugget of fact that if you understand it and place it in its proper context will transform your view of the situation, allowing you to grok it completely. And in the context of Werner Vinge's amazing mind-bending science fiction space opera novel, A Fire Upon the Deep. The importance of Hexapodia is? Those sapient pushers riding around on six-wheeled scooters have been? Genetically programmed to be a fifth column of spies and agents for the great evil. Today, however, here we seek different key insights than Hexapodia. And Brad, what do you think they are? Today, we seek key insights about the proper direction of high-tech AI innovation, if there can be such a thing as a proper direction, and if guiding it in a proper direction is possible. Awesome. I'm very interested in this topic. I'm interested because it is the subject of a very important book that is sitting here on my shelf and that I will read just as soon as I finish Peter Zehan's The End of the World is Just the Beginning. What is The End of the World is Just the Beginning about? It is about how the breakup of globalization uh, uh, will hurt everybody except America, who will be fine. Um, and But anyway, once I read that book, I will start on uh, yes. Asimoglu and Johnson's Power and Progress. Ah, okay. Um, which yes. is all about technology and how we, we need to guide and shape it for the benefit of all. Yes, and it's getting quite a lot of nice press, although I think it grossly overestimates the extent to which it was an interesting book, but one that struck me as much more optimism of the will and actually understanding how it was that one got. So you read the book. That is great. Well, we should do that after the seventh when I come back from Japan. Um, and at that time, I will have read the book. Which will uh, be the 7th of August? The 7th of August. That is when we should get them on. Um, I can definitely get Simon on. Uh, I don't know Daron at all. But let's get back yeah, to what this, this book talks about. Um, my understanding is that it's um, it's mm -hmm. basically an extended discussion of the idea that there are labor augmenting and labor displacing technologies and that both of those things have happened throughout history. Yes. The point above Asimoglu and Johnson is that you can make a difference um, in terms of which technologies a society pursues and which technology a society pursues depends on whether the people are actually active, engaged, able to wield social power to demand that the elite pursue labor augmenting rather than placing technologies. And I think that's basically right. wrong. Um, I think that, yes, it matters a lot what kind of technologies are being pursued by a society, but that, you know, individual power, individual power has little to do. Let's unpack a bit of this. So when I when I started thinking about this idea, it was not from reading that book, but it was, it was from reading a number of articles that sort of made similar arguments that we should try to shape the direction of technology toward things that will complement humans rather than things that will replace. But when I when I thought, my, my first thought was, okay, think back to the late 1800s when we're inventing mm -hmm. all these industrial technologies of what we now call the second industrial revolution, right? The, yes. uh, you know, we invented- the applied um, science age. Right. Yeah. It, you know, we we had like cars mm -hmm. and, and, you know, planes and, and um, electricity. Organic and chemicals and steel and elevators and, and plastics. subways and so forth. 
Right. All the stuff, all the modern stuff we built, mm -hmm. it, you know, from like late 1800s through mid 1900s, right? If you were standing at the beginning of that and thinking, okay, I have a list of all the things we're going to invent over the next 50 years, right? You have this, this magical list of things peering into the future, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you get to choose which to direct resources toward. You have some sort of central planning capability uh, that will allow you to direct people's interest and, and effort toward, um, you know, different kinds of, of technology, different technologies. So you can say, okay, we're going to work less on electricity and more on, on railroads or whatever you want. Right. You can, mm -hmm. you can do that. Yes. How the hell would you have been able, first of all, two questions. Number one, how the hell would you have been able to say, which is which, even in hindsight, right. I find it difficult right. to imagine how we could have changed the technological mix of the second industrial revolution in a way such as to make things turn out better for workers. So that's my first kind of question, like, how the hell would you do that? And my second question is, like, well, didn't it all sort of turn out okay? You know, by the time you get to 1960, you have unions, mm -hmm. you have good manufacturing wages, and you have a compressed distribution of income, and you have everyone being fabulously rich compared to where they were, and you have everyone still having a job. Humans, you know, a few occupations got replaced, but humans as a whole haven't been replaced, and the distribution of wealth and wage income is more equitable than it was at the beginning of that period and all those good things happened and what could you have done in 1890 in terms of restricting the development of certain technologies or even promoting the development of certain technologies but let's say just let's focus on the restriction part what could you have restricted in like i don't know 1880 1890 to make that eventual denouement of the second industrial revolution any better than it was I really think that this concern over the economic impacts of technology comes a lot from the internet, the economic impacts of internet technology specifically. Something yes. happened that was very weird in historical terms with IT. IT mm -hmm. acted on our economy differently than technology had acted in the first and second industrial revolutions. I do think you're right. I think that is where a lot of it is coming from. But I would go back before the internet, you know, I would go back to the mainframe and the idea that there could now be a mainframe computer database and classified into some particular category or the idea that a great deal of what had been social knowledge in the possession of individuals was being fed into computers and that the bosses would then turn us into mechanical drone to which the personal computer was originally supposed to be the answer. You could become, say, an independent internet-enabled Substack um, contributor and be not only your own boss, but completely cut out the middleman except for the, what, the 10% that Hamish and Chris take? I think the basic point here is that technologies have all... It, it is very difficult to predict their economic effects because they're used in a lot of ways that the inventors can't see and that the pre-inventors definitely can't see. So you can say, all right, we're going to create a computer that can do this and this and that. And it's incredibly hard to know, even after you've invented it, but especially before you've invented it, whether or not that will actually be the use to which people, main use to which people put it. So mm -hmm. when, you, when you came out with the internet, you could imagine a lot of things. You could imagine, oh, we'll right. buy our books online. And that turned out to be true. Yes. You could yes. imagine, uh, you know, oh, we'll, um, we'll all use it to become independent creators. And I did that, but, but I would say that mostly most people don't make a living like that. Uh, you no. could say, well, 
we're all going to become computer programmers. Everybody's going to become a computer programmer. And I, I really do think that in the early 90s, at least, or in the 90s, Bill Clinton and his administration very much had this idea that mass employment is going to come from everyone learning to code, learning. right? Learn to code. And everyone did learn to code, but it turns out that only a few people worked actually at, with that as their main or only job. And then mm -hmm. most people just did it a little bit, uh, you know, in, in some other context. And so I think, um, so I think there was a, there were a lot of mistaken predictions about how these technologies would evolve and what they would do. Um, mm -hmm. It was just extremely, but but however hard it was to predict what the internet would do in 1996, it would be incredibly hard to predict what the internet would do in 1976 when they started making the foundational technologies. So if you're trying to steer the innovation in 1976 based on what you thought the internet would be able to do in 2020, mm -hmm. you were you would have no hope. You'd be sunk. You would just be a, a joke. You'd be writing, you know, speculative fiction in in, you know, whatever the predecessor of of Wired magazine was, you know, and and so the idea that we could do this now that mm -hmm. that even an economist as as you know prestigious and respected as Drone Asimoglu could say with any confidence ahead of time how AI technologies or automation technologies will affect labor income and jobs and things like that. 20 years hence, even 10 years hence, even five years hence is is absurd to me. It's like, how how would you know? First, you should look at the elasticity of demand for the tasks that people can still perform as compliments. And right. in fact, going to work in the textile industry has been a way for people who are on the farm to better themselves now for 200 years. But if you're staying on the farm, right? If you're someone who actually makes a living because out in your own little hut or cottage, you can do the spinning or you can do the simple weaving, you know, well, you know, demand for hand loom and hand spinning tasks collapses immensely simply because they can be done so much faster by the machine in the factory. And so it's a right. disaster. It's an absolute disaster for rural textile manufacture, but it's a tremendous boon for consumers and a tremendous boon for urban workers who find themselves moving to the city and getting jobs in the textile factories. The other pieces of it, I think, are um, first social power, right? How much do you have to keep the workers happy? Because they can easily, if they get unhappy, break things and paying efficiency wages so that workers think this is a good job and that they're in a cooperative relationship rather than being exploited is an important piece of it. Henry Ford's $5 day because he wanted his workers serving as his eyes against the Wobblies out of fear the Wobblies might sabotage his factories. No is a thing. And the third thing, right? Does the new technology make a skilled individual worker who actually understands how it works on the ground? Does it make them important or does it make them replaceable? We've seen individual types of human capital get devalued. We saw these, you know, high skilled weavers and seamstresses and people get, yes. you know, their their human capital was suddenly just blown up by mm -hmm. by automation. We saw skilled telephone operators. Their human capital was blown up and they had blown to find up. something else to do. And we've seen travel agents 
uh, travel agent, we, encyclopedia salesmen, term life insurance salesmen. Mm-hmm. We've seen these technologies, uh, you know, blow up the individual human capital of individual occupations. Now, number one, right. my first question is, should we have tried to prevent that? My question two is, what could we have done to prevent that? Yes, yeah, so I guess we'll stop with two. So, so should we have tried to save the jobs, save the careers of the encyclopedia salesman, the term life insurance salesman, the travel insurance, uh, um, the travel agents, the um, you know uh, phone switchboard operators, the seamstresses, and the weavers? Cables into switchboards at four times the price of the first generation of automatic switches. At that point, we're just having people dig the proverbial ditches with yes. the proverbial spoons. Because replacing spoons with... And so so I think we agree that we want to make it so that humans in general still have something to do if we can, but th- we've never come close yet to that not being the case. We've always found something new for humans to do. And, you know, this this sort of Andrew Yang fantasy that the machines will all soon put us out of a job and we'll need to all go on UBI just hasn't, it hasn't even materialized. It hasn't come even no. a little bit close to materializing. We've always no. found new stuff for humans to do in the aggregate and wages have always gone up. Well, not always gone up. Um, not always. Wages are at an all-time high now. Well, yeah, there were a couple of rough decades for kind of blue-collar white males in the United States in the process there. You know, the China shock. Um, you know, the China shock from 2003 to 2007, you know, large decline in American manufacturing workers, male manufacturing workers, large rise in American construction workers. And then with 2007 to 2009, the bottom falls out. Yeah. And so, you know, we've seen all these these compositional shifts, but I'm not sure how easy it was to predict them because there's so many interaction effects between every technology. You know, we, we know that people find new ways to use technologies that the inventors didn't anticipate. Um, right. And we also know that technologies interact with each other in ways we can't predict. So something mm-hmm. that replaces humans in one domain can complement humans in 10 other domains. And unless we can predict all those interaction effects, which we cannot, you know, that that will completely destroy our attempt to predict whether this technology overall is labor augmenting or labor displacing. What is that? And building technologies, you know, tighten bolt number five um, on this particular wheel well assembly as it comes past you on the assembly line. Um, Hmm. And technologies that give people more freedom, more creativity, more power to do the boring path that were parts of their job much more quickly so they can do the interesting parts. And also the parts that actually require that they have passed through some hurdle in the sense of gained some expertise or spent some time apprenticing. Um, You know, that the second are to be kind of encouraged Walmart giving its store under managers access to what things are selling like hotcakes in demographically similar stores near you or so that you can then decide whether you want to order such things Hmm. Um, would be a plus, you know, but, you know, using the same database for someone at head for a team at headquarters to run some linear programming program and say this is what every single Walmart store in all of the Mississippi Valley should be ordering, you know. Um, 
would presumably be a less good use of this technology. Right. But here it's not so much the technology of kind of networks and databases. You know, it's whether it's used to provide information to someone on the spot who has the power to do things or whether it's used to, you know, to take the more interesting and adjusting and kind of decision-making parts of the job away from the store manager and putting it up at headquarters. Mm. So, so just talking through these things, we can see that they're, you know, the, the considerations are hideously complex in retrospect. Mm -hmm. In advance, I would say that this is a hopeless task. Um, I would like to point listeners to the fact that Daron Asimoglu, top economist by any me measure, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and one of the people who studied this the most and the author of this book that you've read that I am about to read, um, he yeah. himself identified one specific kind of technology that he believed was strongly labor displacing and was wrong about it. Which and one is, is that? Industrial, industrial robots. So Asimov ah. and Restrepo in 2017 did this paper where they found that, uh, you know, companies that that um, use more industrial robots uh, use less human labor. And yes. many papers have come out uh, since then with larger, more comprehensive data sets and somewhat cleaned up methodologies yes. that find the exact opposite, that companies mm -hmm. that... Um, and that's true if you use instrumental variables or other sort of, you know, putatively causative techniques as well. You find that basically companies that hire a lot of robot that, that employ a lot of robots also employ more humans than before. Right. Um, mm -hmm. hire, robots and humans are complementary. When companies buy more robots, they hire more people. Now, from there, so so and Asimoglu and Restrepo wrote a follow up paper in which they were like, uh, yeah, OK, actually, this is true. Um, mm -hmm. And so. And so this, um, basically, they were wrong. They were very wrong about this one specific technology. And then, of just now, industrial how, robots. why, and how are they? Oh, um, probably because they looked at only uh, not enough of a time period. Um, and uh, and let me let me check the reams of papers. Um, Uh, let's see. They didn't do positive analysis, so a couple papers do that and find a positive influence. Um, da, 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 da. Let's see. Um, anyway, I'm. Um, yes, I think it. I think it was pretty much just like the the small data set and small uh -huh. time period. And okay. a result that was not particularly large or significant that was then sort of right. uh, reversed upon just including better stuff. And um, and is there I, an instrument? Is there an instrument? Yes, um, there are as, instruments. Uh, patenting is mm, the main one. When you look at patenting in a certain, basically, when you look at industry level data, you can look at things like patenting. So the idea is that this is which is making lots of patents and so there is a demand for its kind of robots that is exogenous to in general the business having its act together right and you can and you can sort of text yeah. mine the patents to mm. see what kind of patents they are mm. so that's an idea but okay so that's then, an idea okay 
I don't know. Instrumental variables sucks, but okay. So um, what the real point here is that out, that essentially every paper that came after them, including one of their own follow-up papers, agreed mm-hmm. that that at the company level, robots right. were associated with more hiring. Now, maybe that now what you can say is okay, maybe the causative stuff is bullshit. And yeah, maybe the what's actually going on is that the companies that are really good are getting a bunch of robots and out competing all the other companies. So you still have a uh, job loss throughout the industry, even if, uh, you know, the, the good companies that are the ones that adopt the robots are hiring more people that's overbound that that's outweighed by all the people throughout the industry that are losing their jobs because they work for the sucky companies that die or fire people. Yes. And, and, but by definition, we are going to have to have job loss, at least at the industry level, because we're always creating new industries. And we're spending money on the things they create. And so. But that's not necessarily true either. So. No, that's not true here, but still. Right. Not but here. okay. So, so then what people did is, oh, they're okay. I can, I can send you all. I looked up this research. I looked up a lot of papers and mm-hmm. what you can do is look at industry data. So you can say, okay, yes. well then let's just look at the car industry. Let's look at the fridge manufacturing industry or whatever. Um, I guess that would be appliance manufacturing, whatever the NAICS codes are. But you can look at these and you can say, okay, we have ideas of how many industrial robots these different industries uh, mm-hmm. use. Let's see if there's a correlation there. And there's not. Guess There's a positive correlation. Again, at the industry level, industries that automate more or that use more industrial robots, which is the, the, right. the definition of robot, hire more people and expand more. Mm-hmm. And and at that point, you have to either say, OK, well, we're we're going to. OK, but uh, maybe the industries that do more automation expand more, but that's at the expense of, uh, you know, other countries. Right. Let's say that the United States All right. uh, mm-hmm. car industry automate or the, the Japanese car industry automates or whatever. And then that's going to outcompete the the countries with the more labor intensive car industries and then destroy jobs overall. Right. And so at mm-hmm. that point, you run into cross country regressions. So you've widened your hypothesis to the point where the data gets too crappy to disprove it and declared victory. No, you shouldn't be able to do that. And when you look anecdotally at the countries, mm-hmm. like when you look at the when you look across industries, at the, at the, the whole set of countries that like um, right. you adopts a lot of robots, they're all doing pretty well. You, you don't see any cross industry uh, mm-hmm. thing and, and cross countries. We. You know, it's hard to argue that we see mass unemployment in the, you know, in manufacturing cross country wise. I I don't there. There has been a decrease in the manufacturing labor force in the United States. But I think that overall number of manufacturing workers in the world has just gone way up. Um, It's hard to know, like, how many total car manufacturing workers there are in the world. Sorry, what did you say? As what actually is a car manufacturing worker? Exactly. Uh, that as you move further up and further up back into fast and up the value chain and down the value chain, there are an awful lot of people who are involved in the automobile production and distribution value chain. Right. There are people who are actually hammering pieces of metal together. And side note, a, a number of a, a number of the jobs that were, quote unquote, lost in manufacturing were actually just companies outsourcing, you know, mm-hmm. instead of instead of having 
like that guy there who does the like quality checks and yeah. blah, 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 who stands there with a piece of paper checking yeah. that your quality of your products is right. You outsource that to a third person consulting firm, which is not in the manufacturing industry. And now right. you lost jobs in the manufacturing industry, but there's still people doing all the same things and things. there's still inputs into actual physical production of things. So mm -hmm. that data is really dirty because of outsourcing, I should say. Yes. Like okay. Manimp or whatever in Fred is really dirty. But so... Mm -hmm. So we can point and say, ah, China took all our manufacturing jobs. Well, yes, but uh, outsourcing took a bunch too, and it's hard to know. And so, but I guess the point here is, you know, Asimoglu himself thought that industrial robots are job-killing technologies. And had and he had his not. brothers in 2017 to be able to shape the future course of innovation, industrial robots, based on his paper with Restrepo in 2017, might have been one of the technologies that he tried to curb. Say, let's have mm -hmm. less less innovation in industrial robots because that was the one he was going around claiming was the job killer and so mm -hmm. what you know that it seems highly likely that he would have said let's invest less in industrial robots well guess what then all the other research came out saying well actually you're wrong and so then but if you curb the development of of industrial robot technology in 2017 2018 and then 2019 to 2021 all these papers come out saying actually well actually you're wrong it's the other mm -hmm. way around then you just lost years of innovation that's my perspective. Um, and that we do not have nearly enough control or knowledge about which kinds of technologies are ultimately going to end up being. Ultimately. thing itself depends on demand, depends on supply, depends on how hard it is for people to train people to do these kinds of things, depends on how many people want to move to the city, um, depends on the extent to which tacit knowledge can be pulled out of the local workplace into a corporate headquarters, which wants always wants to commodify whatever the workers are doing so that it can replace a worker with practically anyone else anywhere in the world. And this is always resisted by has relatively little to do with the actual state of the technology. So now, but we do have right there. There are people who are actually trying to write papers, breaking occupations down into tasks. What's going to happen to these particular tasks, saying, what is it that you can do in order to get people who are able to do the tasks that remain in the occupation once a significant amount have been uh, the coming of second industrial revolution technologies, end quote, de-skilling, unquote. You know, the replacement of people who knew when the steel was at the right carbon consistent, had the right amount of carbon in it from how it sounded to them. Um, two ones in which those skilled steel workers were, you know, moved out of the process and in which their ability to control their local forge was eliminated by a company that brings in engineers and scientists who actually measure them. Right. So I think this is just continuing to underscore the difficulty of of predicting these kind of things in advance. So it sounds like what you say is we want a full employment economy and a high labor demand. And as we long as we have a full employment economy and a high labor demand, things will shake themselves out. I think that that's part of it. I think full employment economy and high labor demand has turned out to be extremely useful for uplifting workers. Mm -hmm. um, especially in this this expansion right now, we've seen this. But on top of that, I greatly diminish oligopoly power. 
moats of all kinds of things, things that produce large profits from organizations that face relatively little competition. Right. And, and you know, I want to then give... there's and then there's the question of why does an organization face really relatively little competition? Why does an organization have a moat? You know that why does Coca-Cola have a moat? Mm. It's very good at what it does at making lots of stuff, but you know the premium that Coca-Cola manages to come manages to command over other types of colas simply because people are used to its taste is quite ridiculous and absurd and yet it continues. The idea of yes, so so I think that that a tight labor market's part of it. Inst mm-hmm. you know uh making sure, you know, taking steps to limit uh monopoly rents of all kinds and monopsony rents are right. important. I think mm-hmm. that we need robust institutions and public goods, you know, institutions could be something like co-determination Germany. I think we need public goods, uh, mm-hmm. you know, build everybody roads and, you know, sanitation systems and all, you know, provide everyone with education, blah, blah, blah. And then we, we have a much more equal world. You notice that you step onto a college campus and no one can tell who the billionaires are, right? Because you're on a college campus and everybody can use the gym and everybody can yes. eat at the same cafeteria and all these things, but not because anyone has, has made a law saying billionaires, you cannot spend your money here. You cannot order lavishly catered meals to this university you cannot you know like ride in in a chariot or whatever or like a stagecoach with 12 horses you can't you can you can drive your incredibly expensive car into campus blah blah blah, etc etc right i don't know if they have a place to land a private jet but the point is that the university provides so many good things that Mm. it doesn't so much matter who's who's richer on paper um and that every college kid um at least who doesn't have to work a bunch to support their parents at home. Uh, you know, every, every college kid feels kind of rich from the, the amenities on camp, right? You might still have to, you know, your parents still might not help you with tuition. So you have to work really hard to put yourself through college and blah, blah, blah. And that, of course that's real. But the point is that the public goods aspect wow. of universities decrease the salience of inequality as well. So I think that's important too. And, and um, uh, you know, and on top of all that, I think we need a welfare state. We need redistribution, robust redistribution wow. like they have, you know, that that means that in the limit, of course, if technology did come along and put us all out of a job and that science fiction scenario actually did come true, even though it shows no signs of coming true. But if it did, we could do the Andrew Yang thing. We could do UBI and it would be fine ultimately because we'd be such a rich society from robots doing everything automatedly that we could just kick back and watch some TV or start a riot or whatever we did you know do for fun um i uh i think that people used to do something called having sex but i think they stopped doing that in in most countries so except for france but um, i'm not sure where this is coming um the gss i see okay anyway no um so i'm just making a joke about the the america's sexlessness which is, is somewhat real but okay, but anyway, that aside, uh, I think you know, a, no, you're a... Making, making a very strong case here, and I feel like I have to be devil's advocate because you wanted this to be an argument. Um, and yet the argument the from yet the argument from von Hayek that we really do not understand enough about new technologies to figure mm-hmm. out whether they are ultimately going to be labor augmenting, placing. 
we do not have enough deep knowledge about how technologies that do not exist will work to understand where there will be places where the job-specific human capital that workers acquire is going to make them extremely valuable and where there'll be places where the only things that are truly valuable the production process is not the experience of an average human worker who has worked in the industry for a while and so figured out how things really work, but is instead contained in the formal bureaucratic mechanisms and specification of the technology. And that until we could figure that out, we are um, extremely ill-advised in trying to say that, you know, um, these personal computers are going to be massively, massively effective at creating jobs in which the technology is labor. You know, while these say, while this type of, I don't know, communication switch is going to be overwhelmingly labor replacing. Um, you know, that is, and here, the example people always use is the automatic teller machine. As a result of which, we have twice as many bank tellers as we would have had in the counterfactual world in which you weren't able to open huge amounts of additional bank branches cheaply um, due to your fact that you had ATMs, but also in which the job of a bank teller is significantly different because it's no longer a job that you primarily spend most of your time on the boring task of counting out cash and you know if you get it wrong, it's your drawer that's going to be docked at the end of the day. But instead, you're being friendly to people and figuring out how to solve their problems and where to refer them to because they've come in with a non-standard situation. You know, And so banking is a much more high-touch, efficient, and value-added service than it was a generation ago. And people seem to like this because we have a lot more banks and they all have things to do. But it's not what you would have predicted from the coming of the ATM machine at all. Exactly. It would yes. be easy to predict that ATMs would destroy banking occupations and that therefore it's a labor-destroying technology rather than mm -hmm. a labor-augmenting technology and so therefore we should restrict it. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Right. But, so but it wasn't. Point to Noah. Point to me over yes. the imaginary straw man of Asimoglu and Johnson who aren't here to defend themselves in his book I haven't yet it's read. It's okay. We'll get back to them in August or we'll try to get back to them in August. Yes, yes, yes. But I mean, they don't disagree about my my solutions. They want things that I don't want, but they also want all the things that I do want. Yeah. They, yeah. they want the welfare state and the public goods and the institutions and the anti-monopoly and blah, 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 blah. They want all that stuff. And the worker power and the union. Right. A great deal of it may be union. You know, that after all, the difference between a um, between a low-status blue-collar job and a high-status blue-collar job has always been how much are you paid. Right. Uh, right. right. You know. Uh, but I mean working conditions, too. But yes. So Working. Well, no, but working, con working conditions can go both ways. You it know. can. Um, all you right. Know, so that the, if you're demonstrate if you're demonstrating that you're actually working and actually working hard in some ways, this is can be a source of status. Um, but I guess my point here is that um, 
they, mm-hmm. you know, this this additional idea. These guys don't disagree with the stuff that I want. They want the stuff I right. want. They just want this other thing where you get some 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 people in a room and maybe Daron Esamoglu imagines it would be mo- you know it would be Daron Esamoglu himself getting to do this. But then mm-hmm. it's also in practice it's going to be you know anthropologists and historians and and bloggers mm-hmm. and whoever in the room too as well as activists all deciding right. which technologies get invented and which don't. It's going to be it's not we're not talking about gas plan here. We're talking about more like NEPA for technologies. Right. Where you as have to, to basically which, Yeah. As to which technologies should be should be given the additional light. funding. Um well no, I don't funding. I think it's just green lighting. It's that we should put more money into this thing because it will have the benefits of plausibly being labor augmented as well as being more productive. Yes. And mm-hmm. I just, you know, I think that whatever institution they think we could create to steer the developments of new technology before they exist is mm-hmm. a bad thing and should not be created. Mm-hmm. Because what good could it do reliably without a huge error rate? No, and I think it's going to manage to absorb a bunch of resources and it may actually that at the best, it's likely to be a highly neutral innovation. And I, I do think that in terms of increase, if, if we make it a purely additive thing where we spend more money on research and we let the research board decide, you know, we let the, the you know, labor augmenting research board decide which to put that extra money into. If we just have, if there's no, if there's no budget constraint, we just spend more on research as a country so that we can right. spend money on things that augment labor more. Well, I like this, but only because it's going to get act as an excuse to spend more money on research, which we need to be doing anyway, which Simon Johnson wrote a whole different book about, which I agreed with strongly. So this is a Leo Straussian argument for you that you can get <laughs> yes. Elizabeth Warren to vote for this if we say it's going to be devoted only to labor technologies right and who knows what the hell that is it's going to be randomized but what it's gonna what it's gonna do is it's gonna spend more dollars on research and you know what i would like to spend more dollars on research i am a paul romarian here Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. paul romer's right and i think it's highly likely that he is so let's let's spend more and if we could get darren To, like affix his signature to saying, I believe this will be labor augmenting. It's, you know, we know what it's going to end up like. It's like when when we made the H-1B program, we required companies to say, well, this isn't something that we could get Americans to do. Yes. Well, that's bullshit. You have no idea what you could get Americans to do. However, they all have to say it. And then this gives yes. us an excuse to do the thing we should have done for just, you know, Everyone. period. Yep. Anyway, more high skilled immigration. We always should yes. have done that. Now we have an excuse. We make up mm-hmm. this excuse by having these people do some paperwork and say, I couldn't get domestic workers to do this blah, blah, bullshit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So so maybe we add another layer of paperwork saying, let's add some research funding if we claim that it's going to result in labor augmenting technologies. And let's hire a bunch of people who's, you know, ex NSF people to write these proposals. <laughs> so that they get through and will add a layer of dumbass paperwork in exchange for some extra research funding. Maybe that will work. But I think more the more likely outcome is simply that very few people read this book. No. And no one does anything like it. 
the other thing, the other possibility is that, you know, if you're a corporation, the way to make money is to commoditize every other piece of the value chain except the one in which your expertise is. You know, that if you're Microsoft, you want everything except the operating machine to be made by 33 different companies all existing in perfectly competitive environments. And then you, because there's lock-in for the Windows operating machine, managed to grab all of the monies. That if you're Apple computer, you have rabid fan base plus a very nice operating system. And so you're now, what, $2.8 trillion in terms of your expected discounted value of future cash flows to Apple computer, which is an absurdly large proportion of the value created by this particular value chain. Or, or devices that cost a thousand dollars when there are quite good substitutes that cost only one hundred. Maybe there's a sense in which um, a large not-for-profit industrial research laboratory apparatus is good insurance against companies actually figuring out some way to tweak research and development. So it is labor replacing rather than labor augmenting because labor replacing innovation commoditizes more of the value chain than labor augmenting does. Anyway, maybe. But you should then promptly ask for examples. Right for yeah. historical examples of this. Yes, I think that's got to be the I've first been thinking, question we ask. What yeah. would you have stopped from being invented? Has to be the mm -hmm. first question we ask these people. Go back in time, and I think slow with down. Perfect I think foreknowledge. What would you have stopped? Yeah, I think slow down the adoption of the power loom. Slow down the adoption of, of the power loom. Of course, the best way to slow down the adoption of the power loom would have been to have ended North American slavery two generations earlier. People would have had to pay a lot more for cotton. Right. Which would also have been a significant win. Um, but, you know, um, but aside from slow down the adoption of the power loom, both because the hand loom weaver the world don't get creamed so badly and also because the incentives to have more american slaves and brutalize them growing more cotton were less um, aside from that i'm having a hard time thinking of it. anyway is there any other suggestion that you would make for policy in this regard yes we can yes all right anyway i think this is a good place to end let's talk this about is a good what place to end yes yes Brad, what are what are your key insights for today? Um, that we thought we were going to have an argument, and we didn't, and we didn't have an argument because Noah showed up with the von Hayekian tacit knowledge point. That since a great deal, what determines whether a um, technology is labor augmenting or labor replacing is the form of the tacit knowledge that the workers using it happen to have. And since we cannot know what shape this tacit knowledge takes before the technology is actually invented, you know, attempting to classify future technologies into labor augmenting and labor placing is a total fool's errand that can only introduce noise into an already noisy system and consume resources and so is not worth doing. That 
I would say is one of my key insights as well. I would add that to that, mm-hmm. that we have a toolkit of things that we've done in the past that ended up creating broad-based wealth. Uh, yes. Some some real degree of economic equality um, mm-hmm. and a society that most people generally bought into. We have and this we toolbox. And we should do that again. We should just we should do, that, do again. that again. There's yes. no obvious reason. You know, I mean, yes, chat GPT talks, whatever. There's no yes. obvious reason why today's technology, today's automation technologies are qualitatively different than yesterday's in terms of making these tools less effective. Let's do the things that we know have worked. Let us learn from the lessons of history. We've had hundreds of years of industrial history now to learn that there are some things we can always sort of do when new technology comes along to make society work for everybody, to make the new society work for as many people as possible for a very large, broad cross-section of society. Let's do those things again. And then if mm-hmm. we enter some sci-fi future where technology works completely differently to the way it did in the past and starts being labor displacing and humans go the way of horses and blah, blah, all the sci-fi stuff you hear people talk about all the time, we can add to that standard toolkit. But let's just do the standard toolkit first and see what happens. Okay. So devote our energies to doing standard toolkit things that work rather than chasing chimeric will of the wisps about how will chat GPT actually replace interns? And because there are no interns, people will not have a road toward learning human capital from emulating interns' bosses to make them valuable parts of the workplace. Um, yes. And it's... All right. And our final key insight is? As usual, Hexapodia. Yes. This has been Brad DeLong and Noah Smith's revived Hexapodia podcast after our long spring hiatus. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. And goodbye.